Good morning, everyone. This will be another PowerPoint. So if you want, sit as close to the front as you like to see it. And we'll shut off all the lights if you don't mind. Thanks, Claire, or whoever can do that. That works. So this is our final Sunday school of the spring semester. If you are here at 9.30 next week, come to the Spanish ministry, because that's all that's going to be here. Uh, our final Sunday school. And as I mentioned last Lord's Day, um, I want to continue talking about Bunhill Fields, that dissenter's cemetery in London. And last week was focused on the history of the burial ground itself. You know, why was that burial ground established? How did it grow over time? And so on and so forth. When did it close? Is it still there? And such things. And today, we're going to focus more on some of the people that are actually buried there and their stories. And so these are tales from the tombs or crypt chronicles, as some might call them. Uh, the subtitle here is Bunhill Biographies of the More Common Sort. Let's go to the next slide. So I say Bunhill biographies of the more common sort because most people know Bunhill Fields for the more prominent persons that they know are buried there. So for example, who was buried in Bunhill Fields? Well, Thomas Brooks was. Remember, he wrote Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices that is so useful. Pastor Campbell went through it in Sunday school. Many of you may have read it or read parts of it. Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, famous congregationalists. Our uh, theological heritage owes a great deal to them. They are buried in Bunhill Fields. You can still visit their tombs. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he's buried in Bunhill Fields. And then many particular Baptists, Nehemiah Cox, Hansard Knowles, William Kiffin, Hercules Collins, they're all buried there. Isaac Watts, the, the hymn writer, many of our hymns uh, are um, are authored or were authored by Isaac Watts. Daniel Williams, you may have heard of Dr. Williams Library in London. It's a, a famous library where people go to do research and such things. Uh, Dr. Williams himself is buried in Bunhill Fields. John Gill, particular Baptist. John Rippon, particular Baptist. They were pastors in the church that Spurgeon later pastored and which still exists today, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Joseph Ivy May, the Baptist historian. Uh, William Blake, the artist, you may have seen his fantastical drawings of um, all, all kinds of things. He's much more well-known in the larger uh, non-Christian world than these names would be in the Christian world. So William Blake is a figure that draws many people to Bunhill Fields irrespective of Christianity. Daniel Defoe, who wrote um, Robinson Crusoe, he's buried in Bunhill Fields. He was a dissenter. And many more of these more prominent and we might say famous persons are buried in Bunhill Fields. But that's not what we're going to cover. That's the typical kind of thing that you would have people give a presentation on for Bunhill Fields is they would tell you about these persons, but I'm not going to do that. Let's go to the next slide. Let's first introduce this by asking the question, how would we know who is buried in Bunhill Fields, and how would we know where they are buried? 
we know the big names like Owen and Goodwin and Bunyan and so forth because they're famous and everybody knows that. But we talked about over 100,000 people being buried in Bunhill Fields. How would you know who was buried and where they are buried? Well, in 1788, um, the keepers of the grounds, at that time the city of London, or by then the city of London, they set up a numbering system where the, it created a grid in the burial ground. If, if you look closely in the background of this picture to something that you wouldn't normally pay attention to, there are plaques with numbers that says 17, 18, 19, and 20. And they put these plaques around the entirety of the walls of the outside of the burial ground, which creates a number grid. And then with that number grid, they could record exactly where a given person was buried. So these would be um, the north-south numbers, and then there would be other numbers facing the other direction, and you would just get uh, coordinates such and such east-west, such and such north-south, and you know exactly where they're buried. And so we have the location of many, 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 many of the graves, even if those graves are no longer uh, legible today, or even if those graves aren't even there today, we know at least where they were. Or you can go to that spot and say, this is effaced and illegible now, but I know what it is because it's in the exact location that it should be. So the, the grid coordinates, which are really no longer visible on the ground, all, most of those plaques are gone, there's only a few left, they established a, a numbering system and a, a location system to pinpoint where graves were or are. And starting in 1713 until 1854 when the ground was closed, we have register books of the people that were buried there. So the groundskeepers who were receiving burials would make a note, so-and-so buried from such-and-such such a parish on such-and-such such a day, grave or vault and so on and so forth. So we have register books from 1713 to 1854. We have grid coordinates starting in 1788. All that's very helpful. But one of the most useful, excuse me, one of the most useful ways to know who is buried there and where is by consulting the research of John Rippon Sr. and his son, John Rippon Jr. John Rippon Sr., I mentioned him in the previous slide, was a Baptist pastor in what is now the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Spurgeon was a pastor. And John Rippon, in his uh, spare time in the summers, he would dedicate a few days a week to go to Bunhill Fields, and he would copy the inscriptions of all the graves and where they were located on this grid uh, map, and we have his records. So we have his inscriptions, or his transcription of the inscriptions, along with the coordinates, and we can read all of that today and find out from a grave that is now entirely illegible exactly what it once used to say, which is a huge thank you to Dr. John Rippon and his son, John Rippon, who did a great deal of the work after him, along with him and after him. And they also made a map uh, of Bunhill Fields with the names plotted onto it. So they created a map, they put all the, the names onto the map, which you already have that information if you have their inscriptions of the epitaphs and the locations, but they actually put it onto a map, and you can see these things today. Uh, I've, I've seen them and taken many, many pictures of, of them. Next slide. 
so here's a picture that I took. Uh, I, I wasn't even looking for these plaques, but there are still some of the plaques. I just happened to see it in the background of one of my photos. I said, hey, wait a second. The plaques are still there, some of them. So that says 17, 18, 19. Some of the plaques, most of them are gone, but some are still there. That's how you would locate on, on the grid. Next, please. This is a description of John Rippon doing his work from a diary uh, of a contemporary. It says, we found a worthy man, Mr. Rippon by name, who was laid down upon his side between two graves and writing out the epitaphs word for word. He had an inkhorn in his buttonhole and a pen and book. I've seen them. Well, the pen and the book, or the book. He tells us that he has taken most of the old inscriptions and that he will, if God be pleased to spare his days, do all. He will do all the inscriptions. Notwithstanding, it is a grievous labor, and the writing is hard to make out by reason of the oldness of the cutting in some and defacings of other stones. It is a labor of love to him, and when he is gathered to his fathers, I hope someone will go on with his work. I volunteer his tribute. <laughs> So that's, a, that's what John Rippon did. He would go in the summertime and dedicate uh, a portion of his week to lie down in Bunhill Fields and figure out all of, the, all of the inscriptions and copy them, and we have his work to this day up until 1826. That's as late as he was copying, so there were some graves after him that were not recorded in his work uh, because of he, he was too old to do it. And as he says, it is a, or as it, in her words, the diarist's words, of his words, it is a grievous labor. You have to lie down on the ground and figure out what the, what the tombs say because depending on how well they're cut, uh, they are effaced rather quickly, actually. And so even in Rippon's day, not everything was easy to read. Some of them were quite, quite difficult. Let's proceed. Okay, so now the rest of the presentation will look into certain particular individuals that we wouldn't know about apart from his work, generally speaking, because they're not famous people. They weren't pastors or authors or, or famous artists that are buried in the ground and remembered to this day. They were brothers and sisters like you and me uh, who lived and died in the Lord and deserve as much recognition as, as the rest. So the first of these is John Pelly Leopard. John Pelly Leopard. And this picture on the left side is an, it's a, it's an invitation card to a funeral at Bunhill Fields that is among John Rippon's collections. So if you go and look at John Rippon's collections in the British Library, one of them is this thing, uh, an invitation to a funeral at Bunhill Fields. It says, you are desired to attend the funeral of Mr. John Pelly Leopard from his late dwelling house in Chester Place, Lambeth, to the burying ground at Bunhill on Wednesday the 30th, 30th of March, at 11 o'clock in the forenoon, because it's, you know, it's forenoon, then afternoon, a coach will wait on you about half past 10, which tells you it takes about half an hour by coach to get to Bunhill Fields, because the funeral's at 11, the coach will be there at half past 10. Uh, and here's the funeral card. It has a, a tomb with some scriptures on it, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This is the invitation I just read to you. Then it quotes Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Uh, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it has a, a skeleton decaying and then a rather strange <laughs> depiction of a, I don't know, angelic buns, you might say, <laughs> uh, ascending <laughs> into, into the sky. Uh, so it's an artistic depiction of death and, and everlasting life. And I thought to myself, why, 
why did Rippon have this invitation card to Bunhill Fields? Why John Pelly Leopard? Was, what was the connection between the two? And so I looked up John Pelly Leopard's last will and testament, and in it he said, I give and bequeath ten guineas to the Reverend Dr. Rippon. Ten, ten guineas would be ten pounds, ten shillings. And so he, he knew, clearly, Dr. John Rippon, uh, and it, it seems that he attended Rippon's church. Uh, so if you lived in um, if you lived in England during that time and one of your church members uh, went to be with the Lord and was buried at Bunhill Fields, you might get an invitation like this to their funeral at Bunhill Fields. That's not a, a drawing of Bunhill Fields or of that person's tomb in Bunhill Fields. It's just an artistic depiction of a tomb and, and such things for the purpose of the, in, of the funeral and the invitation card. Next, please. Now, <clears throat> what can we learn about John Pelly Leopard? Uh, there's an obituary that you can read for him, and in the obituary, it tells us about his, the influences that, uh, in his life that led him to uh, come to the gospel as a young man. And so it says that he, this is John Pelly Leopard, was an instance of early piety, being impressed with convictions for sin when only about nine or ten years of age by reading Mr. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and enjoying the frequent instructions of his mother, for whose attention to his best interests he used to say he could never be sufficiently thankful. So John Pelly Leopard is just like us. How many people have read Pilgrim's Progress and said, it made an impression on me. I connected to it so much it seemed to tell my own story whether it's this character or another character or this time of my life or another time of my life, a Pilgrim's Progress was um, special to John Pelly Leopard as it has been for so many. And then how many others would also say that the instruction of their mother when they were little, the time that she invested to teach them in the home was of great importance in their spiritual formation, which is a reminder to all the mothers here of what a wonderful influence if the Lord bless your, your efforts you can be for your children uh, uh, such a, a beautiful remembrance of the things that were precious to him in his early years. Were these the only spiritual influences? No, but they were very important for his early formation. Next. This is the epitaph. This is the inscription on John. Oh, excuse me. We're moving forward. We're finishing John Pelly Leopard, and we're going to go to a rather strange and peculiar person named John Pennyman. Uh, and John Pennyman was sort of a Quaker, <laughs> which you'd say, well, what sort of a Quaker? I'll tell you. This on the left is the epitaph. This is the inscription on the tomb or the headstone of John Pennyman. Here lieth the body of John Pennyman, who was required by Abraham's God to offer up, as Abraham did, an unusual sacrifice at the Royal Exchange in London upon the 28th day of July, 1670, and for a perpetual memorial of which he ordered this inscription to be set in place. Now, if you just read this inscription, what would you think that he did? You would think he offered up his son. What are you talking about? He was required by Abraham's God to offer up, as Abraham did, an unusual sacrifice at the Royal Exchange in London. What in the world are you talking about, Mr. John Pennyman? Well, here's what happened. On the 28th of July, 1670, John Pennyman stopped on an impulse and burned a bag of Quaker books. So here's what's happening. John Pennyman was a, was a Quaker. He was part of the Quaker community. 
and, it, and in those communities, uh, so much depended, in fact, almost everything depended on the light within. Impulses of the spirit that prompted people to quake and to speak and to act. Uh, and, and that's what their community was based on. The Quakers thought that Christianity had been entirely corrupted. There was no true or pure church in any of the established or nonconformist churches. None of them were pure. So they had their own enclaves, their own little gatherings, and they would wait for someone to be moved by the Spirit to speak. And when they acted, they would say, the Spirit is moving me to act in, in many cases. So John Pennyman was part of the Quaker community, but he became um, disenchanted, uh, frustrated with the Quaker community. They, they weren't pure enough. <laughs> they, they, I mean, if, if everything depends on what moves you and what you happen to think in some moment, how could there be any cohesion or centrality to the movement apart from personalities, which is generally speaking what it was. But John Pennyman, it, he did his own thing and went his own way. And so he was walking in London with a, a bag of books, and suddenly the spirit told him, burn the bag of books. And so he burned this bag of books suddenly in, in a very public way, uh, and everyone just thought he was insane, because he was. Uh, but the Quakers rejected him because they thought he had burned the Bible. Uh, and so it was something no one would ever dare to do. Why would you burn the Bible? And he said, no, I didn't burn the Bible. I just burned Quaker books. And so they were really mad at him again. Um, he was a Quaker outcast. Next. William Penn, for whom Pennsylvania is named, uh, the Quaker, he, sp he said this about John Pennyman, and you can see him as an outcast. Uh, John Pennyman married a woman, uh, and it was not in the traditional Quaker form of marrying someone. So William Penn said, we countenance no clandestine marriages. In other words, we do not regard as valid marriages that are done in secret or separate from us, as we have reason to believe John Pennyman's was. For he came not to be married, but to declare he had taken Mary Borman to be his wife. But when, how, and before whom he did it is known to few, if any. So William Penn is saying he wasn't married among us. He didn't ask us to be a part of it. He just went and did it on his own. And John Pennyman's marriage was a, an elaborate and extravagant feast after his marriage, which was very much, no, a Quaker would never do that. We, we shun uh, e extravagance and, and lavish things. And so they also criticized his, his new wife. John Pennyman's wife exchanged her cloth waistcoat for a silk gown, her blue apron for one of fine Holland, and her ordinary bodice for rich satin itself. The horror. To say little of her riding in fine coaches and several other things, once accounted by her self-righteous, abominable things. So John Pennyman is rejected by the Quaker community. Next. All right, uh, let's actually go back one. So I was wondering, why is a Quaker buried in Bunhill Fields when there's a Quaker burial ground just across the street from Bunhill Fields where Quakers were buried together. And it became clear, well, because he was a reject. He was an outcast from the Quaker community. And that's why he was buried in Bunhill Fields where anybody can be buried. Uh, you tend to think of Bunhill Fields as a, a sacred place of the most eminent nonconformists. But it also has some, uh, to use a technical term, weirdos uh, buried there too. And John Pennyman is one of them who had his very epitaph inscribed as he was required by Abraham's God to offer, offer up an unusual sacrifice as Abraham did. He was out of his mind. All right, let's move forward to someone who's in their right mind, a, a particular Baptist woman 
uh, who was very important in some interesting ways, but you wouldn't know about her. Her name was Hannah Humphreys. Hannah Humphreys, a particular Baptist, and her tombstone said, Here lieth the body of Mrs. Hannah Humphreys, or Humphreys, who departed this life May the 4th, hey, on Star Wars Day, May the 4th, 1725, aged 66 years. May the 4th be with you. Uh, Hannah was married to Samuel Humphreys, and Samuel Humphreys and Hannah were longtime members of the Artillery Street Baptist Church. That was formerly the Petty France Baptist Church. So they were under, um, her, uh, excuse me, William Collins as a pastor. And Samuel Humphreys, the husband, he was a deacon in the church for many years, and he died in 1723, and he left everything to Hannah. Some wills are very detailed. You get this spoon, and you get that spoon, and it goes on forever and ever. Other wills, usually the men's wills, say things like, I give everything to my wife, the end. <laughs> Samuel's will was like that. He just left everything to Hannah, his wife. Her will was much more detailed. Uh, and it's her will that is really very interesting in the ways in which she related to particular Baptist churches. So let's go to the next slide. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Hannah, who is a very generous woman. In her will, she left bequests to many members of her church uh, and other churches. So to many Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, she left money to them. She also left money to many different ministers, not just her minister, but she names at least six or so from the churches in London that's in the surrounding area. She also left money for charity children and orphans, charity children in schools. Uh, she also left money to widows, and not just widows in general in her church, but also she left money to widows of such Protestant dissenting ministers as are commonly known and distinguished by the name of particular Baptists. So widows of former Baptists or former pastors of particular Baptist churches, and she left money to many churches. So she was a very generous woman. Her husband had been a deacon. She's being a deaconess here uh, in leaving money to, to many people who would need it and who could use it. And it's in one of her bequests to a church that we find a very interesting influence that she had. Next slide, please. Wording matters. Here's what she said in her will. She said, I give the rents and profits of my two houses in Lower Moorfields and the remainder of the term therein, the length of time that I have them, in trust to dispose of the profits thereof to and among the minister and poor of a dissenting congregation now meeting at Turner's Hall, London, to which I now belong. So it's for her church. She's going to leave property and the profits of that property for the term that it belongs to her for the benefit of the minister and the poor of her church. They will get the profits. Turner's Hall, uh, the Petty France Church moved to Artillery Lane, which moved to Turner's Hall. It's all the same church, just in different locations. But then she says, and in case of their dissolution, if that church should dissolve, then this, the profits of this property uh, will go to the Baptist ministers now meeting at Pinner's Hall, London, for the benefit of poor ministers in the country. So it will go to a fund uh, that would then be distributed to poor ministers outside of London if her church dissolves. Well, not long after her death in the mid-1720s, the Turner's Hall Church merged with the Devonshire Square Church. Next slide, please. But when those two churches merged, they did something very strange. 
So here's how their merger worked. The Turner's Hall Church is going to join the Devonshire Square Church. The Devonshire Square Church, though, they were dissolved and joined the Turner's Hall Church. But they met in the Devonshire Square Church and they continued to be known as the Devonshire Square Church. So imagine this. Imagine that Providence Reformed Baptist Church in Irvine comes to join us. All of their members come and become a part of this church. But we, and so we're all meeting here, but we say Trinity Reformed Baptist Church is dissolving. We are now Providence Reformed Baptist Church. You'd say, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, they did that. They continued to meet in Devonshire Square, but they called them, they were the Turner's Hall Church because of that bequest, because if Turner's Hall dissolves itself, then the, the bequest, the profits of that property, will, will they'll lose them, which is supporting the pastor and the poor of the church. So it, it was really a matter of semantics because they keep meeting in Devonshire Square and ultimately they keep, continue being known by that name because that's where they're meeting. But if you read the fine print of how they united, how they joined, it will say that the Devonshire Square Church, they were technically dissolved. Uh, and it was the Turner's Hall Church that continued on and so forth. So when you're reading the church book without context, you think, why in the world is it happening this way? But it's because of a very particular bequest in a will worded in a very particular way that necessitated this. So in Bunhill Fields, Hannah Humphreys is buried there, and she was a charitable, particular Baptist woman who had an interesting influence on the future of a church because of the wording of her will and that particular bequest to her church. Next, please. Here's a, a, sad, a sad story. Henry Wilson, Jr. Here's what his stone says in Bunhill Fields. Sacred to the memory of Henry Wilson, Jr. of this parish, uh, the parish in which Bunhill Fields was located, St. Luke's, who in one fatal moment fell a sacrifice to rash, unguarded youth and was shot by the discharge of his own gun owing to a bad lock that would go off at half-cock as he was getting over a hedge near Hornsey on the 16th of January, 1788, in the 14th year of his age. And then they added, they added this poem. Be warned, rash youth, at my untimely fate, and view in me life's transitory state. Early I bloomed, and early too I died. Obey your parents, and heaven will be your guide. Though blessed with all that nature e'er can give, youth and vitality, whene'er we cease to obey, we cease to live. So a very strange and unusual stone based on a very strange and unusual event of a young man who probably had a pistol in his pants, the waist of his pants, and it, it, he was shot by his own gun, um, which the parents raised this stone to call him rash, and unguarded, and to warn others to consider how short their life may be and how their own foolishness could easily end their own lives, as he, only 14 years old, was killed by the discharge of his own pistol. Next, please. Now, the resurrection of Dr. Eames. Among the technical term weirdos buried in Bunhill Fields, one of them uh, was a man named Dr. Eames. I don't think he was a true doctor. And he was a part of a group of people known as the French Prophets, 
who, much like the Quakers, their Christianity, so-called, but not in any way real Christianity, was based on visions and impulses and things that, the, that they thought the Spirit told them or told them to do. And one of their members, Thomas Eames, uh, he died in December, and they were all convinced that Jesus was coming back before any of them would die, so this event kind of rocked their faith, so-called. And when Thomas Eames died, people in the group began to predict that he would be raised from the dead. He was buried in Bunhill Fields, but they predicted that he would be resurrected. And so here are some of their predictions about Dr. Eames. Yes, I will raise the dead. By the same power that I have raised Jesus, will I raise that body now asleep? They're speaking of Dr. Eames. And then it gets just weird. This body that will be raised will be more fat and more fair than ever he has been. It shall not be known by his friends that he hath fasted so many months. In other words, he's been dead and not eaten for so long. So fat, so lovely shall he appear that the beholders shall fall in love with him. Yes, the same body, the same face, though more lovely. My children, he shall come out of his grave without the earth being taken away that he lies upon. They won't dig him up. He's just going to come out of it. He shall come forth in the presence of men, and he shall untie his shroud, his burial shroud, in which he is now wrapped. This shall not be in secret, no, but in public. So they're predicting something absolutely fantastic, that this man who's been dead for six months is going to be resurrected with a body that's fatter and fairer than ever before, such that everyone will fall in love with his handsomeness. You won't have to dig him out or open the, bur open the coffin. He's just going to come out and undo his own burial shroud. You sure about that? <laughs> they even predicted the day. Know ye the day in which my servant was interred? December 25th. Five months from that day, the 25th day of May, you shall behold him rise again. So they specify the exact moment when Dr. Thomas Eames is going to be resurrected. And I ask, are you sure about that? Next. They made a grave error. Here's a report uh, from someone else about the event. Uh, in this cemetery was buried Dr. Thomas Eames, a practicer of medicine, one of the sect of the prophesiers, or the French prophets, of whose rising again out of his grave here, after a wonderful and terrible manner, his party confidently prophesied to happen on the 25th of May, 1708, which ironically was, what, two days ago? Uh, the day I was preparing this PowerPoint was the 25th of May. Spooky, huh? On which day were thousands of people got together at his tomb to see the issue? But the prophecy failed. The prophesiers were very blank at it. <laughs> Notwithstanding, they affirmed the prophecy was from God, but that he had deceived them. So <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. The literature that follows from this, they say, well, how do you know he wasn't resurrected? <laughs> okay, no one's going to take you seriously ever again. Uh, so this happened in Bunhill Fields, uh, one of the stranger... Uh, stories, and some of the graves were broken because thousands of people were stepping on them and trying to see what was going to happen, so they caused a real problem uh, in the burial ground and did damage to some of the tombs. Next. All right, for the last two, um, for the last two, we'll finish on a, a positive note. Uh, this is the grave of the tombstone of Elizabeth uh, Van Ruyven. Campbell could probably tell us how to pronounce that more appropriately. 
She died the 29th of September, 1765. She was 28 years old. She said, Long time I mourned with pain oppressed till Jesus did me call to come to his eternal rest, which makes amends for all. So there's some really beautiful poems on the, the tombstones of Bunhill Fields. And this one I really enjoyed from Mrs. Elizabeth Van Royven, uh, who reminds us that we may spend a long time mourning and being oppressed by pain, but when our Lord calls us to eternal rest, it will make amends for all of that. Next and last, Anne Pett. <clears throat> she died on the 10th of October, 1735. She was 67 years old. Here's what she said in her last will and testament. She said, I resign my soul unto Almighty God who gave it, trusting in the infinite mercies of my Creator for a resurrection to eternal life through the merits and mediation of my blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And my body I commit to the earth, desiring it may be buried in my vault in the burying ground in Bunhill Fields. So she trusts in the mercies of God uh, and for a, a resurrection to eternal life through the merits and mediation of her blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And she wants to be buried in Bunhill Fields. So what did her tombstone say? Next, please. She said, Weep not for me. It is in vain. Death is no loss, but a gain. Here I lie, free from all pain, till Christ shall raise me up again. Which reminds us, again, of the fact that there is an appropriate grief in death and mourning the death of a loved one, but it, it is a measured grief and a, a limited grief because it is only a loss for us. It's a gain for them till Christ shall raise me up again. And I believe that's the last slide. Is that right, Blake? Yes. So that, that gives you an idea into some of the people uh, buried in Bunhill Fields and their faith or their lack of faith it's not just, it, I started out at the beginning with that uh, sort of long list of some of the great worthies and eminent persons buried there, uh, but the fact is all kinds of people are buried in Bunhill Fields, and some of them have a faith for us to imitate, and others are a warning about uh, rashness and foolishness. Others also are instances of uh, so-called Christianity when it is entirely divorced from the scriptures and from the truth and people acting based on their own impulses, which they attribute to the Spirit. Uh, and I wanted you to meet some of, the, some of the women of our particular Baptist or just Protestant and nonconformist heritage, Hannah Humphreys, Anne Pett, Elizabeth Van Royven, uh, because generally speaking, you'll only meet the, the men and the ministers and the authors if you read things about Bunhill Fields, but their faith is also worthy of imitation. And we saw in the case of John Pelly Leopard, just how influential a mother's life can be for her children uh, in forming them uh, spiritually. A, a father's spiritual leadership is extremely important. This, there's never a, an either-or. It's just a, acknowledging the important place of a mother as she spends time with her little children. So I hope that that's been of interest to you, but also of some edification and encouragement as well as exhortation. And Lord willing, in the future, throughout the future, excuse me, for... Um, the coming semesters of Sunday School, I'd like to work in Tales from the Tombs from time to time uh, in those future semesters. So thank you for your attention.